Um, we watched uh, Ford v Ferrari the other night, and that movie was fun, but also three hours long. And we were both Super fun, though. yeah, like a lot of fun. But we it ended. We we're like, that was great. Should have been half an hour shorter. Oh yeah, yeah. That one was like this was factory made to win Oscar. Or this was factory made to be nominated for Oscars. I don't know that it was factory made to win Oscars. Good evening and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am your co-host, Martha Sullivan, uh, and tonight, tonight I am a pumpkin farmer. Mm. The Animal Crossing update has gotten me, gotten me back invested in my island, farming lots of pumpkins, crafting jack-o'-lanterns, and preparing for... Uh, while preparing for a Halloween party that I can have in a virtual sphere rather than uh, the physical one I would rather be having. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I also I also went around and gave all my villagers jack-o'-lanterns outside their doors. Because you got to. It's Halloween time. If you give them jack-o'-lanterns, do they decorate their house with them? No, I just put a jack-o'-lantern outside their houses. They don't get oh. any say in their decoration choices. Okay. I am a benevolent god. <laughs> <laughs> I just give them clothing that I want them to wear. Hmm, sure. <laughs> um, which means that they're already starting to be in costume. <laughs> Ooh, I should do that. Uh, give yes. them all zombie clothing. I am joined, I am joined as always, by my co-host. Uh, I am Pete Romberg, and today I had a big old fall baking day. It was gray and gloomy and cold, so I made um, apple pie empanadas and then sweet potato gratin for dinner. And they both turned out oh deliciously. God. Yeah, if if we lived in the same town and also it wasn't COVID o'clock, uh, you would be getting some hand pies because oh I made a lot. Those sound amazing. The thing about fall, I'm I am a big fan of seasonally appropriate weather. So like I like it when it gets chilly. I like it when it's hot during the summertime. But the thing about fall is that fall has the best flavors, and I do not just mean pumpkin spice, even mm -hmm. though I'm a deep pumpkin spice appreciator, but like apple and maple and cinnamon. Sage. And... Yes. I, I like, feel like so many, so many like fall dishes have sage and it's. Mm. All of these rich fall flavors Squashes. are just so good. Yes. Yes. It's uh... the best. It's the best beer season it with Oktoberfest and Marzins. Except and... it is impossible to get pumpkin beer right now. Um, we well, like... There was like, a, there was like a pumpkin shortage last year that I think is oh. like it, it affected what people were brewing last year, which is affecting their production, like their actual selling this year, I think is how it turned out. Interesting, because like, usually pumpkin pumpkin beers and Oktoberfests generally come out in like the beginning of August because everything is broken. Um, yes. But by, by mid-September, when you might want a pumpkin beer, usually they're still on the shelves. Um, and this year... I successfully found a single six-pack of Lakefront's pumpkin beer, um, and no other pumpkin beers brewed by anyone by, like, the end of September. And it's been devastating. I just want pumpkin beer. I know, I've been drinking a lot of Oktoberfests. Mm -hmm. And there have been a ton of Oktoberfests, and they're great and tasty, but not quite the same. 
Mm-hmm. Been doing a lot of hard cider. Uh, we went up to Door County a couple weeks ago, and there's a, a great cidery up there. So we came back with a, you know, <laughs> a lot of nice, delicious hard cider. So yes, that is my that is my pitch for fall being the best flavor month. Yeah. Uh, we are going to be talking about failed Oscar bait today, but before we get deep into into the bowels of that conversation, uh, we are going to real quick tell you what is stuck in our heads this week. Uh, Pete, would you like to start? Yeah. Um, after seven months, I think, of Animal Crossing heavy, having a complete monopoly on my Nintendo Switch, uh, that has finally been broken by a new game that I've been playing, Hades a roguelike action role-playing game, and if you're like me, the term roguelike doesn't mean anything. Uh, Basically, it's you're uh, the son of Hades, the Greek god, trying to escape from the underworld. You go through randomly generated, or as they describe it, procedurally generated rooms, where you kill a bunch of bad guys, pick up some swag, and go on to the next room. The gimmick here is that you're going to die a lot, And every time you die, you get dragged back into the halls of Hades, and you get to have conversations with the other uh, gods and spirits who live there, such as, you know, Hypnos, the god of sleep, who's sort of the bookkeeper who's dealing with the intake of all the new souls, or Achilles, uh, the great hero, um, or your father Hades. Um, You get to pet Cerberus the dog um, every time you die and then come back. Uh... But every time you die, you also have the chance to become more powerful. So the first couple run-throughs... you know, you're not doing super great, but by your 8th, 10th, 24th, 50th, 100th run-through, you're steamrolling the first couple levels and getting, like, as your skill as the player increases, the character's abilities also are increasing, uh, which makes it a very addictive game, great to be playing both on its own and, well, you know, you're watching something on TV or whatever. Uh, Much like Animal Crossing, it's a game that you can, you know, have the volume off for, be consuming something else audibly as you are uh, slaying a bunch of skeletons and underworld spirits. So I had to have my husband Bill define roguelike to me because yeah, I had to wiki it. It did not mean anything to me. <laughs> and he he described it for me and talked about how, you know, it is a kind of game that is designed for you to die a lot and learn from like learn from the game every time you die. And from what I have seen of the story and the character designs and the dialogue of Hades, there are aspects to this game that I would enjoy a lot. I will say I'm never gonna play this game. I'm never gonna play this game. <laughs> uh knowing you, there's also a relationship mechanic built in for all the characters you can talk to. Uh are you joking? I'm not joking. You can give them gifts and build up some hearts as they get to like you more. No one told me it was also a dating sim. <laughs> I I have done very little on that angle. Like I've given them I've given a lot of people one gift so that they give me one gift back. But um after you give them one gift, they stop giving you gifts in return and uh but for someone like you where the dating sim angle is like a huge like is point it of actually, it. Is it actually a dating sim? My like, under, my understanding is that if you get a high enough relationship score with people, you can get romantic options but i go wiki that part because that i i don't know about any of that just just having like people be nice to you is not the same thing sure i'm I'm sorry the whole idea of a game that is by design one that i will have to replay 
a lot of it over and over and over again makes me want to die. So so the fact that the There's pun intended nothing about that that sounds fun to me. The the part uh, that is interesting for me and what keeps me coming back is that all the like the each room and the the enemies you're fighting and all the rest are randomized each time. So it doesn't feel like you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. It just feels like you're fighting you know, you fight a bunch of bad guys in a bunch of different rooms, getting different treasures, and and it's different every time. So, yeah, you die and then you have to restart, but it, you're not just going through the exact same room with the exact same bad guys going through the exact same routine. You're just like, you've got to clear 25 rooms to get out of the first level of hell. What those 25 rooms are, are different each time. I kind of just want to play a game It, it yeah. that either moves forward progressively in time or doesn't sure that's fair um yeah i i will say this is a your mileage may vary game i wasn't sure if i would like it because i thought the combat would be too like whatever i'm increasingly old and i don't get video games uh so watching youtube clips like that seems very busy i don't know how easy and fun this combat would be uh but it's great it's just button mashing it's like you're at an arcade yeah, I'm also just very bad at video games. <laughs> so a game that depends on me getting better at it is kind of one that I'm like, but I'll never be better at it. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> uh, so what is stuck in my head this week is really more of a concept. Um, back in, I believe, 2004 or 2006, one of those. Uh, Bravo released a miniseries special called The 100 Scariest Movie Moments, which can accurately be described as the way that I got into horror as a film media. Um, it was a countdown anthology where they got a bunch of um, directors and actors and kind of B and C list celebrities to come talk about uh, the 100 scariest movie moments in all of cinema. They did two follow-up series, the last one which was released in 2009, and since then have done nothing. Uh, they will not even release the original series on DVD so that I can buy it and watch it whenever I want to, um, which I would if it was available. <laughs> so this year, I decided that I was going to construct my own list of the 100 scariest movie moments that have been in film since 2010 to now, because the last of the Bravo specials came out in 2009. So I have just been immersed in listicles and Wikipedia articles and conversations on the internet about the 100 scariest scenes or moments from movies that have come out between 2010 to now. My list is at about 80 movies. And this is specifically movies, not TV shows. Correct. Mm, mm -hmm. That was a decision that I had to make, but I decided that keeping in the spirit of the original special, I would limit this to just movies. Um, it has been a tricky list to write because most of these are not movies that I've seen. Mm -hmm. So, um, I have to kind of trust people when they, when they tell me something, I have to kind of go on their word for it, but it does mean that my, my list of movies that I would like to see just gets ever longer. <laughs> um, and it's been really interesting to see the moments that are sort of universally acknowledged. Mm. Like every time. Every time I mention this list, um, the sunken place teacup scene from Get Out gets a mention. Yes. Um, I think at this point, people have recommended most of Hereditary. So I, I had to kind of 
limit it to just a couple a couple scenes and, and hereditary is one i have not seen uh which is crazy but i'll get to it eventually um but yeah so it's been a really interesting list to write i i want to start actually like publicizing the list i'm gonna be i'm gonna be doing a couple of newsletter issues to release the list into the wild and i was hoping that i would have all 100 before i did that um like i said i'm only at 80 uh so we will see how it goes and also i've been grouping them by decade rather than grouping them just by year of release rather than trying to do any kind of evaluative ranking because like i said i have not seen most of these movies so i really don't feel qualified um to make a judgment call on like how scary they are in relation to each other Mm -hmm. um but it's been it's been a really interesting process i've been thinking about um movies that are not horror that have really upsetting or scary moments in them um and just like thinking about rather than a movie as a whole being scary like what are the moments in this movie that make it unforgettable, that make it truly terrifying. Have you thought of uh, any of Fincher's 2010s output? Uh, Dragon Tattoo and Gone Girl probably being the two options. I do have a scene. I do have a scene from Gone Girl on there. I had not thought about Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, but that is an option. When did that one come out? Uh, I think it came out post-2010. Uh, 2011. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I put the... Um, I, I'm scrolling through my letterbox for, like, what movies have I seen in the past, like, year and a half that might that might fit this category. Yeah, I put the murder sex scene with Neil Patrick Harris from Gone Girl. That, on that the- was the scene I was thinking of uh, for Gone Girl. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I know you asked me about um, uh, The Lighthouse on Twitter. Uh, I did. And the problem with The Lighthouse is uh, the correct answer would be, I don't know, the whole movie or the last like third of the movie or it's not really a scary movie so much as it's a surreal, bizarre, you know, deeply off-putting but in a fascinating way kind of movie. Well, and I was asking about that because I have seen it described as like psychological horror um, and those kinds of movies typically have like even if the movie as a whole is not designed to be a horror movie, yeah. they will have scenes in it that are really upsetting or really horrifying, like as kind of a capsule within the movie. Right. So like with the lighthouse, the the two scenes that to me are most memorable are uh, an excellent um, rant by uh, uh, Willem Dafoe, uh, which isn't scary, but is like, Truly incredible, and he should have uh, been nominated for it. Um, and the entire final third of the movie, which is that, like, capsule of horror sort of idea um, that you were talking about. Because that's where the psychology breaks down, and the Robert Pattinson character is just hallucinating a bunch of stuff. <laughs> well, if you can get any more specific than that. <laughs> I mean... I the... would love to include it. <laughs> The very last scene is incredibly spoilerific and also one that's seared into my brain. So, yeah, I think at the moment I have the placeholder as the last scene in the lighthouse. Yeah, that that would be a good answer. Or the last shot of the lighthouse. Mm, Yeah, yeah, you could say last scene. I think that would that would do it. Cool. 
But yeah, so that's not like one single piece of media that's stuck in my head, but rather this whole project that I've been kind of chipping away at. Yeah, super cool. Uh, so Pro- we are going to take a quick... Oh, sorry? Uh, I was going to say, pr- projects like that make me um, very happy that about a year and a half ago, I started using Letterboxd to record what movies I watch, uh, because yes. I would have such a hard time even like conjuring in my mind what movies have I seen in the past year. Uh, without an external source telling me what I have seen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to uh, get into our discussion on failed Oscar bait. We are back. So today we are going to be talking about failed Oscar bait. And I think before we get into our discussion, uh, we are going to have to define this term because I don't actually know if I'm the only one on the planet that uses this phrase. I know I'm I know I'm not the only one that uses the phrase Oscar bait. We all kind of know what that means. Um, when I think of a movie that is labeled Oscar bait, I think of a movie that is released um, September to December. Mm-hmm. Which is why we're doing this episode now, because we would nor yes. in a normal movie going year, this would be peak Oscar season, Oscar would, bait season. We would be in the thick of it. Yes. Um. Typically, so Oscar bait, I think, comes in a couple of different categories. You have movies about historical events. Um, you have movies about, you have biopics, movies about historical figures. Um, every once in a while you get a high concept, um, almost literary movie. Think something like Interstellar. Um, or, or Inception. Or an adapt. I don't think, Inception, both Interstellar and Inception are summer movies because Nolan loves that summer slot. Um... But speaking of literary, there's also the adaptations of literary source material, such as Little Women. Yes. Um, Movies about... um, Movies about heavy subjects. I'm thinking about, like, relationship dramas. Um, But, like, relationship dramas that are commenting on the, like... American, like the failed American dream. <laughs> prestige pictures. Like, it's not just a relationship prestige drama, pictures. it's a prestige relationship drama. August Osage yeah. County. Yeah, war movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Most of these are historical in some way. Um, either, either because they're biopics or about a historical event, um, or because they're period pieces. Yes. Um, I think there's also a smaller niche available for social commentary movies, although I don't think they tend to win as much. Um, but movies that are commenting in some way about our current uh, like state of being. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the genre of Oscar bait that I 
tend to enjoy either the most or the least um, are movies that are about how much we all love movies. Ah, the artist. Which was mm, almost dropped <laughs> down there. A terrible movie, actually. But that's where you get, yeah, like the artist, La La Land. Argo. Hugo. Hugo, Hugo yeah. Um, yeah, Argo is like, Argo hit a bunch of those. <laughs> yes. Argo um, is Hollywood is great and also history and it's serious yes. and it's about modern stuff too because Iran. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and then every once in a while you get a movie that hits um, many or multiple or some of these buttons and is actually also enjoyable to watch. <laughs> like Hugo. Yes. Um, so... A failed Oscar bait movie would be something that hits one or multiple of those buttons and tends to also come with an appreciable amount of buzz on its release. And then when the award season actually rolls around, crickets. Mm -hmm. um, and I just kind of wanted to explore um, some of these movies that we think we're gunning, gunning for those Oscar, Oscar noms. And I, I think that I should also specify when I am talking about Oscar bait and Pete, if you disagree with this, we can talk about that too. I am talking about movies that are clearly making a run for one of the big six or one of the big, um, two nominations. Oh, I was kind of including the big six in it. Um, uh, to, to clarify big two, you mean picture and director. And and by big six, I mean picture director plus the various actor Acting. actresses. Yeah. Well, and we can talk about why I don't include those. Um, spoiler alert, it's sexism. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I am frequently talking about movies that are clearly gunning for a best director, best picture nomination. Mm -hmm. um, this, this year in particular, um, Ad Astra, for example. Yep. I heard that one was coming out, and I was like, or no, not Ad Astra, First Man. The Ryan Gosling is um, uh, 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 Neil Armstrong? Yes. Yeah. I heard about that one, and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> All of the... Uh, directed by the guy who did, um, like, the drumming movie that the Oscars loved. Oh, Whiplash? Uh, Whiplash, yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing about Oscar bait, is frequently the directors are legacy. Yeah. Directors, like directors that have either won in the past or been nominated a bunch of times in the past. Um, they will frequently feature critically acclaimed actors mm -hmm. uh, or Meryl Streep. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> first off, uh, same thing. Second off, Meryl Streep is in an enormous number of both Oscar and failed Oscar bait films. Well, because, I mean, Meryl Streep is in everything. Yes. Someone made a joke. One of the Oscar hosts made a joke one year, and I don't remember who it was, about how, like, it was a year that Meryl Streep was not nominated for anything. And the joke was, oh, they couldn't even find, like, a toilet paper commercial to put her in. <laughs> um. So yeah, that that is roughly what I mean when I use the phrase Oscar bait. Um, is your definition different, Pete? I I think my definition is mostly the same, other than the fact that, like we just mentioned, I expand it out to include the actor actress categories, uh, both supporting and lead. Um, and that's because something like uh, 
First Man, which would have been a great choice for this. Uh, obviously gunning for Best Picture, Best Director, but also I could have seen Ryan Gosling up for Best Actor, and I think all it got nommed for was sound design or sound editing, and I don't recall if it won those at all. Um, similarly, the homework that I assigned felt very much like it was gunning for the actresses in addition to maybe Best Picture, um, but it, I, I feel like it was one that had a higher chance of getting an actress nomination, and it didn't get those at all. This is why I don't include the acting nominations when I talk about something. Or the acting nominations, I think, for me, are a different kind of Oscar bait, mm-hmm. and that is because um, big Oscar baity movies will frequently feature or an attempt at featuring a best actor nomination. They rarely feature a best actress nomination. Mm-hmm. The movies that get best actress nominations do not freak, do not typically. Obviously, this is not a blanket statement, right? Uh, but do not typically then also get nominated for best picture. They get nominated for the cosmetic awards, um, but when we're talking about who the who who gets recognized. From the Best Picture nominees, it is generally men. Sure, because the lead character of a true Best Picture movie is obviously a man. The Irishman was a movie created in a lab to win Oscars. Yeah, and then it didn't. I know. We we uh, we could have chosen The Irishman, except for that would have been four hours of our life. Also, it got nominated for a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm kind of more interested in the movies that don't even get nominated. Mm. I I was a little looser on the nomination. I was looking at it more from a, what did it feel like it was gunning for? And then what did it like get a nomination for? And obviously if it won nominate, if it won anything that doesn't count, even if it not, if it won like, you know, sound editing, uh, if if you're you're taking home any hardware, you're not a failed Oscar bait. Would you agree with that? That sounds like maybe some disagreement. I, well, because, again, I think when we talk about Oscar bait, like, I don't tend to think of the movies that win the technical awards as, like, the people that make those movies, I don't think are making them with the idea that this will win Oscars. Right, but think of something like 1917, where it both, it was, it's it was, movie. it's a war movie, and war movies tend to be both, the the well-made war movies, the Saving Private Ryans and the 1917s, tend to grab both the prestige uh, awards like the director picture but also the technical awards where something like star wars obviously is only going to be picking up technicals i guess i lost track of i guess like like something how... like something like 1917 is an oscar bait film in my mind right like it's a, it's a war Absolutely. movie all the rest of it if it only picked up like sound design i think that would still be a failed oscar bait movie because it didn't pick up what it was trying to get which was the more prestigious awards well and see i would say it's not failed because it got the nominations Hmm, okay like i said i'm i am the most interested right now in movies that failed even to get to the yeah they failed even to get to the red carpet Mm, hmm okay Cool. We do have two different homeworks then. One that I was astonished that your homework, uh, and I feel like we're dancing around both of these to to keep our audience on suspense, but they should have <laughs> they should have watched these movies anyway. So whatever. Uh, <laughs> I was astonished when I learned that your homework had not even picked up a best actor category. 
Um, I'm telling you. Okay. So I picked J. Edgar, the J. Edgar Hoover biopic that was directed by Clint Eastwood, mm -hmm. starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Army Hammer, and Naomi Watts. And Adam Driver in his first film role. Right. Written by Dustin Lance Black, who, let's take a look at his other writing credits, shall we? Um, Milk. Oh. Um... I guess that's the biggest one. <laughs> <laughs> milk, um, milk yeah, two, wrote, more he milk. Wrote, he wrote a bunch of episodes of Big Love for HBO. Um, he wrote the script for a movie called Virginia, which I wanted to be a biography of Virginia Woolf, but is not. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so this movie, I think it is... It is about J. Edgar Hoover's life and also kind of nominally about the creation of um, the FBI. Mm -hmm. And it is it is a it is one of the string of movies that made people go Leonardo DiCaprio is overdue for an Oscar, even though he's only 40 and men typically don't win their Oscars until they're old. Um, <laughs> but um yeah, I, I feel very strongly that this movie was part of when people were designing this movie was this movie is going to be nominated for Oscars. Yeah. Would you like to know what it was nominated for? Uh, I looked this up and I know that in terms of the Academy Awards, it was nominated for nothing. Nothing. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio got a nomination for the Golden Globe for Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture Drama. It got a couple of nominations at the Screen Actors Guild. Um, National Board won, of Review it won. It won the AFI Award for Movie of the Year. <laughs> uh, uh, the Satellite Awards. Production. It won Production Design at the Hollywood Film Awards. So yeah. this is a movie... That I cannot, I cannot believe. Sorry, I cannot believe. Leo did not even win. He was nominated, but he did not even win the SAG. No, that's astonishing. What else came out in twenty in this year? Um, let's find that's, out. Like that might be that might be the thing. Like maybe maybe J Edgar was just up against an absolutely stacked deck. All right, so eighty fourth Academy Awards. 2012 which is when it would have been not oh yeah oh, well, that well, was here we go artist. it was up against midnight in paris the greatest film oh and it was also <laughs> up, well it was also up wait midnight in paris i'm making a joke oh okay it was up against tinker taylor soldier spy which i think is a very similar like occupies a very similar niche and warhorse unless i'm looking at the wrong year you are all right it came out it came out in 2011, so the Oscars would yeah. have been in 2012. 84th Academy Awards? Yes. Yeah, okay, I'm looking at the right year. That that was the year the artist won. Yes. Yeah, okay. So yeah, like War yeah. Horse, Moneyball, Hugo, these are all going to take a lot from it. Yeah, what were the... Best what were actor. the best? Oh. <laughs> what were the best picture? Okay, so our best direct, our best directors were. This is the year the um, artist just Michelle. swept for whatever reason. What? This was the year the artist swept for whatever reason. Yeah, it's a. I don't know. I it because it's a movie that loves movies and it does it in a non-challenging way. I hated the artist. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Michelle has 
Michel Hazanavicius for The Artist, Alexander Payne for The Descendants, Martin Scorsese for Hugo, Woody Allen for Midnight in Paris, and Terrence Malick for The Tree of Life, which, what? <laughs> no, no. Tree of Life is, that is a total Oscar bait film. It makes 100% sense that that got nominated. Okay, but our Best Picture nominees were The Artist, The Descendants, Extremely Loud and Incredibly (laughs) Close, oh my god, Uh, The Help, Hugo, Midnight in Paris, Moneyball, The Tree of Life, and War Horse. Of which one of those, two of those are great movies. (laughs) Moneyball and Hugo. Oh, I would say three. I thought The Descendants was great. I did not see The Descendants. Midnight in Paris would have been great if it hadn't been directed by Woody Allen. I was thinking the same thing. All the flashbacks in 1920s are a lot of fun. Uh, And Tree of Life, again, I got a soft spot in my heart for it. Fair. But anyway, so we're looking at a movie in terms of J. Edgar that fills so many boxes on the Oscars bingo card. And I'm looking at this list of nominees. And I think the problem is that everything that J. Edgar did, another movie did better. Yeah, part of the problem is that J. Edgar is not a good movie. Um, so yeah, like, like Leo, (laughs) Leo gave a great performance and Army Hammer is also like really fun in it, but it's not a good movie. And I'm very suspect of its politics. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover should not be a hero. He should not be lionized. And I think this movie was like, he's a complicated figure, but also at the end of the day, probably a good guy. And, you know, this came out in 2011, and obviously Clint Eastwood has slipped further and further uh, into madness since then. Please see 2016 and since then. Um, but, it, like, it, uh, like, I was trying to come at this movie with as as blank slate a possible in terms of, like, knowing that it's a Clint Eastwood movie, but also knowing that it's from 2011. This is before most people, you know, like... Watching this in a post uh, George Floyd world is very different. Um, so, like, okay, we go back to 2011. Most movie-going audiences aren't thinking about that. Cool. Uh, Clint Eastwood, he's not quite talking to an empty chair, pretending Obama's there on the 2016 like GOP convention. Cool. Even then, I'm not uh, comfortable with its politics, which seemed to be J. Edgar Hoover, complicated guy, but you know, did some important stuff for his country, uh, which is does not sit right with me yeah as far as the quality of this movie i thought it was a pretty straightforward up and down biopic which tend to be pretty boring for me because we already know what the story is yeah um i actually i had a very in-depth discussion with someone at work the other day about how the only biopics that i really care about are biopics that have the nerve to tell me something i did not already know I'm a fan of biopics like Lincoln that focus on a very small part of someone's life. Like, I don't need 50 years of J. Edgar Hoover's life. Just give me, you know, the the two years where he was dealing with X, Y, or Z issue. Yeah, and I, I think that when you examine a moment in history that closely, you have the chance to really take a look at, like, why does this moment because then i want to know like why does this moment matter right what is it about this moment that caused the ripples like what is it about this moment that made the person that you're talking about important right selma is another great example i think that the only way that bohemian rhapsody could have worked as a movie is if the entire movie had been the lead up to and then the live aid concert 
Um, but Bohemian Rhapsody worked great as a movie. It won a Bohemian lot of Rhapsody. awards. Bohemian Rhapsody is a terrible movie. <laughs> no, but it, <laughs> how could it possibly be a terrible movie? It won, like, Best Picture, didn't it? No. Oh, okay. Did, it, it lost a green book. All right. <laughs> it, it lost a green book. Another perfect movie. No, it, no, uh, no. It won Best Picture. No, it was nominated. Okay. <laughs> No, the two we we're about to get into the 2019 Oscars and the the travesty of that show. Uh. Um. Well, now that the segment known as "Trolling Martha" is oh finished, um. and then Pete had to cut out 30 minutes of my hysterical laughter. Okay. Anyway. So, right, like, agree. Like, um, Bohemian Rhapsody, like many biopics, fails because it's trying to tell a birth-to-death story, which is dumb because you have two hours, and that's not... No one should tell a story that way. Um, so yeah, it, it... So going back to J. Edgar, like, J. Edgar fails because it's a bad movie. J. Edgar also fails because it's an American history movie... Um, but so is the help. So mm-hmm. is, I mean, Warhorse and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy are not American history movies, but they are history movies. And Warhorse is Spielberg, um, so whatever. Yeah, like I, I feel that every, and also I keep looking at Moneyball and thinking if Brad Pitt is nominated in a year, Leo has no chance. Yeah, there were <laughs> a couple. The there two- were. They're kind of contemporaries a little bit, but I think that Brad Pitt is a better actor, and I think the Academy likes him more. There were times when, with all the makeup, I thought Leo was looking a little bit like Brad Pitt in this. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that if J. Edgar had come out in a different year that was maybe not already so historical adaptation heavy, it may have had a better chance. But also, you're right, I think it just suffers from the fact that it's not very good. Yeah. Um, the makeup is hilariously bad, especially the old age makeup at the end. Uh, I just could not help, like, giggling at it. Well, that's also a funny point, because typically biopics will pick up a makeup nomination because whoever is starring in them has to turn into the character that they are portraying. Right, either an old person or a young person, and also, you know, put a big old nose on him, and now he's Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I like Leo got a lot of plaudits for this role. Um, he he generally was described as being the best part of the film, which I would agree with. Uh, and then he captured J. Edgar Hoover's mannerisms very well, which fine. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, just the, the old age makeup was so distracting, uh, especially Army Hammers, um, which is astonishing for a big budget budget like Clint Eastwood biopic movie where. They could have high like I I don't know what happened there, you know? Yeah, it's like it it almost feels like somebody said, let's make a movie that's gonna win Oscars, and then they decided they didn't have to do any more work. Right. With it's like, it. We we got the actors, we got the directors. Done. Yeah, just throw it together and it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tell us about, so we're going to skip a couple years into the future to mm-hmm. 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pete, tell us about your pick. 
So, so I you can find that. Yeah, uh, so I selected uh, Mary Queen of Scots, the 2018 historical drama starring um, Shursa Ronan as the titular Mary Queen of Scots and Margot Robbie as Queen Elizabeth I. Um, history spoiler, uh, Mary Queen of Scots goes on to be the mother of James Stewart, who will take the throne when Elizabeth dies. But before all that, um, there's lots of good religious and political intrigue and drama. Uh, we have David Tennant as um, uh, John Knox, the founder of Presbyterianism, with an amazing beard. Talk about good makeup. Um, it, it's a political drama about Mary, uh, the Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth, the Queen of England, and all the various machinations between their courts and among Mary's court. Uh, I will be honest, this is the first time I saw it, and based on the promotional material... I know it's called Mary, Queen of Scots, but I thought that Margot Robbie would have a slightly larger role. Um, I feel like all the promotional material had the two of them as, like, the two big characters. Um, and obviously, she, Margot Robbie, as, as Elizabeth, is a critical character, but she kind of disappears from the movie for long stretches of time, which I was not expecting. Um, also, I don't know... She, she was a wild choice to play Queen Elizabeth I <laughs> I kind of loved it. Uh, I love Margot Robbie, but that was a choice. I actually just took a look to see if I could tell from IMDb if she was a producer on the movie mm. because because I, how else did she get that role? Just the the casting in this movie, right? Like we we uh, other than Shirley Ronan and Margot Robbie, we have like David Tennant and Guy Pearce in it. Um, I, yeah, the casting in this movie is wild. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you felt this way. This is a period of time, like, I know my English history pretty well, but I know almost nothing about this period of time. Um, a fact that, uh, Marin did not realize, so she was just like, oh yeah, no, that's so-and-so and that's so-and-so. I'm like, I don't know who those people are. Um, and I, I feel like that made this movie, it felt a little disjointed and a little hard to follow, partly because of that whole, like, we're just telling a, a chunk of history and you better keep up because these are the people. Um, and they're, they're all very well acted and well written and everything, but I'm like, uh, I don't know anyone's name in this. Like, I, can I tell you a secret? Mm -hmm. I usually feel that way about period pieces like this. Okay. So, like, so this I, is me as a enough, normal audience member. <laughs> no, I know enough about history to know who the major players are, but when I'm watching something like Wolf Hall, it's like, I know Thomas Cromwell. <laughs> right. And everyone else, like, I'll take your word for it. Right. And, and like, and from there, I'm going to infer some stuff. Like, you seem like you might be having a relationship, so I'll say that that's what's happening. Yes. Um, I, I think for some reason I had it in my head that this movie was more similar to the Kirsten Dunst Marie Antoinette mm. movie. Uh, it is not. So, no, it's not. Um, I didn't hate. I didn't hate what it is. Mm hmm. Think it, I I kind of think that they missed an opportunity with these two actresses to make it more about the relationship between Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots. Like that was what I thought we were getting. Same, and and I think that's because the promotional material sort of made it seem like it. <laughs> in my, in my memory of it, like the trailers and the promotional material were almost like the the promotional material for Heat. It's like we got Pacino, we got De Niro and they're going to meet on screen. It's like we got Ronan, we got Roby. They're going to meet on screen. And they do, mm -hmm. but you know, it's for 5 minutes. 
so I sorry, I, I did like this movie though. Yeah, I almost kind of want to watch it again now that I know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but also my life is short right. and I don't know that I have I don't know that it would be a priority of mine right, to watch yeah. it again. If it were on a TV somewhere and you happened to be in the room, you'd stick around, maybe. Yeah. Um. So can I tell you why this would not have been a choice for me for Failed Oscar Bait? Uh, is it because it got nominated or is it because it stars women and therefore probably isn't chasing a Best Picture, Best Director? I don't think it was chasing Best Picture, Best Director awards. I think the people who made this movie at all. I think the people who made this movie were thinking... Um, this will probably, I think the awards that they were shooting for, and I think that this probably had a great deal to do with the way it was marketed were, um, to either a best actress and a best supporting actress nomination for Sorcha Ronan and Margot Robbie or two, um, best supporting nominations. I, if they had given Ronan a supporting, that would have been a crime. Um, I agree with you. Sometimes, sometimes movies will do that. Um, if they think that she has a better chance of sure. winning if she's up against Meryl in a lead or something right yeah. <laughs> although her name's on the poster so i think that actually as i'm saying that like that would have been kind of a bizarre choice well and, and like ronan uh, gets more screen time than than roby um yeah but yeah uh i i agree which is why i considered it as an oscar bait because in my heuristics chasing an actor or actress counted Okay. Uh, and that being said, though, yeah, it, I think it, we're just talking about difference in semantics. Yes, I, I agree. Um, uh, that being said, this did get nominated for both makeup and costumes, and it did feel like a movie, like many period pieces, where it was expecting to be nominated for those, and it could have easily won them. I'm a little surprised it didn't get it didn't win makeup. Let's find out who did. Yeah. Because yeah, normally, okay, makeup and hairstyle. Oh, oh. I'm mad now. Okay. Uh, Vice won, and oh. I hate, I hated Vice in a way that I don't hate very many movies. I did not see that uh, movie because I had negative interests and I didn't have to because I wasn't uh, being a completionist like you were. Uh, I was for watching say, all the I, best pictures. I have a disease where <laughs> I I go to the AMC showcase every year, um, so that I can see all of the best picture nominees because usually if you if you can watch all the best picture nominations you're covering most of the awards yeah um, um but and this this year it was like you had half of the nominees were in one bracket of caliber and half of them were in another yeah. and never the twain shall meet yeah this was like so this this lost costumes to black panther which i'm like cool that's that's awesome uh, Honestly, that's correct. Yeah, like, I mean, the costumes in this were wonderful, but y'all see what Wakandans were wearing? Cool. Um, hair and makeup, it was Vice Border, which was a Scandinavian, um, like, giant movie. Uh, and Mary Queen of Scots. And I am... Mm, not even having seen Vice, I'm shocked and appalled that it beat out uh, Mary QoS for makeup. Um, Human words cannot describe... How much I hate it, <laughs> and I loved. Um, I, I was gonna say, uh, Moneyball. Yes. Yeah. 
Vice is the film student version of those movies. Which is insane because it came out later. Like, usually, if someone were to say this director did Vice and Moneyball, you'd be like, oh, so he did Vice first and figured out what worked and what didn't and then made Moneyball, right? Uh, or, or um, uh, The Big Short. Yeah. 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 Vice can... I cannot... I... Mm. <laughs> I don't want to get this episode slapped with an explicit tag, so I cannot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Listener, use your imagination for what Martha wants Vice to do. <laughs> yes. Um. um but anyway, <laughs> uh, I did think this was a much better movie than J. Edgar, even though they are both nominally historical biopics. I think part of what makes this um, work is that it's about a much smaller amount of time. Um, and that's also because, true. spoiler, she dies. So, uh, you know, we're already truncated there in, in terms of how long of a story we can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that does help a lot. It, it focuses everything on, like, the two or three critical moments and, and critical conflicts rather than having a sprawling, you know. Yeah, it lets you, it lets you really dig into it. And like I said, my big disappointment um about this movie was that it was not more about the relationship between mary and elizabeth Mm -hmm. Um, because that is the part like that's the part that's interesting because mary thinks she's going to be queen elizabeth knows she's going to be queen she just has to figure out how to get there well elizabeth is already like they're both already queens of their respective countries true uh and so then it's like is mary mary thinks she'll be queen of england too and, and Elizabeth knows that that is won't. not happening. <laughs> right. But they're both part of this family that has this like long history of um, this political kind of maneuvering. And ultimately, it's a story about which one of them does it better. Mm-hmm. And I, I would have liked to get more of that. dynamic and and in a way mary did it better in the sense that like yeah she died but she got her son to be the the king of both so and true except that who is the one that we remember now well we remember uh, elizabeth and then we remember james uh her son so like yeah mary qos is not remembered but do we remember james though i mean this is the part of, of english history that i start like coming back alive for yeah james and charles and charles and james and cromwell in the middle and like james uh, uh, elizabeth and james are the two shakespeare monarchs so you know macbeth was written because james was on the throne okay but i don't know that that is i I don't know that that is as widely understood culturally as queen elizabeth the first is as a like historical figure totally if you're like Name English she monarchs, right? If you're like name English monarchs before, like the American Revolution, people will first say "huh," and then they'll say Henry VIII and Elizabeth the First. And if they don't understand time, Queen Victoria. <laughs> uh, also true. Uh, right, but like I, I guess what I'm saying is like that is the part. Like I was saying that this period of english history is an area that i'm not super familiar with so martha i was having the experience that you more often have with historical movies where it's just like i don't know any of these people or what they are or who they are right (laughs) uh which is a less usual situation for me um 
and then as we get into the James period, I'm like, okay, I recognize some of these people. Um, but yeah. So the question that I would like us to turn to now is, why does all of this matter? Um, explain or re rephrase like what what part of this okay. are we talking about? Why why does why does it matter to talk about movies that are trying to be like why is the evaluation of a movie in terms of its attempted award winning potential a worthwhile topic of conversation? Mm. Um, partly it much earlier in this uh podcast conversation you were saying that you hate oscar bait films or like you hate the idea of oscar bait films and i think that they can be very lazy films uh j edgar is a great example of that it is a first off why are we choosing to tell that particular story and second off if that is the story that we're going to tell you've got a great actor you've got a good director uh and this is what you come up with um and i mm. I, I feel like if you if you don't have a system that knows what wins awards, then you are more likely to get films that are doing more innovative things. Whereas because we know what wins awards, actors and directors can sign on to projects that they think of as award bait projects and then do what they need to do to chase the award rather than doing what they need to do to create a good film, tell a good story, deliver a good performance, whatever it is. Not that those two can't coexist. Uh, we've talked about many movies that both are good movies and award bait and won awards. Um, but it also creates a, a, a um, like a pipeline for movies that are not good movies, but check all the boxes that you need to check to win awards. Yes to all of that. I would even go so far as to say that because the movies that offer up our Best Actress nominations are not typically movies that the Academy would look at to nominate for Best Picture Director, those are movies that I tend to enjoy more and think more highly of than movies that are going that are offering up Best Actor or Best Director, um, like, obvious nominations. Would you say um, that that's because they're doing something more innovative and... and use innovative how like define innovative however you want there um yeah i think it's i think it's a feedback loop because i think that the academy it, it's a it's a little bit um the snake biting its own tail because sure. what happens i think is that the academy has all of these obvious characteristics they're looking for in their best picture nominations um and those generally tend to be uh, movies that star movies that are about middle-aged white guys and star middle-aged white men and then um, you have gary oldman playing churchill exactly and then the movies that get picked up for best actress nominations because i don't think they are as pointedly designed to win awards have the freedom to do more interesting things mm -hmm. like ladybird was also recognized as a Best Picture nomination, which was frankly kind of surprising to me because that is a small story about a teenage girl going through a coming-of-age event. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic movie. It's one of the best movies I saw that year. 
But when I saw it, I was not thinking this movie is going to get nominated for Best Picture. I was thinking Saoirse Ronan is going to get um, Best Actress. Get Best Actress for this movie. Yeah. I, um, I, I will say the um, the exception that proves the rule is the same year that uh, Mary Queen of Scots came out was the favorite year, um, where that was at least nominated for all the big awards. But also, Olivia Colman was the only one who who picked up any hardware in the big categories for Best Actress. Mm-hmm. But also, that's like Yorgos Lanthimos, so we're dealing with a, like, an well, he's not really an Academy-friendly director, but like, he's a director with name recognition and stuff. And those directors tend not to pick female-centered films because they tend to be men. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I I don't really have any response other than agreement. <laughs> right, like <laughs> other than like Patty Jenkins and Catherine Bigelow, there are no female directors with serious name recognition. I I, I would put Greta Gerwig in that Greta category yep. now. No, you're you're totally right. You're totally right. Um, yeah. So so I guess like to, to to go back to your question like why does this matter? Uh, it matters because we get a bunch of bad movies every year uh, that are trying to be prestige pictures, and they follow formula that exists because these movies have tradition have won in the past, and you know it's it's bad for art in general, bad for movies in general. Yeah, and I I think it is one of the direct causes that is leading to the Academy becoming a joke of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, like. I, I even hate the fact that we can call October through December um, Oscar season. Oscar season. Like, that sucks. <laughs> I Will this be the year that Birds of Prey wins the best picture and blows up what it means to be a film? <laughs> An Oscar film? God, I hope so. <laughs> that movie was legitimately good, though. It was, it was a lot we, of fun. We watched, it, we watched it the other night. Part of why... Um, Part of why we watched it the other night was because a friend of ours hadn't seen it yet. But also I was like, do I just remember this movie as being so good because it was the last movie I saw in theaters before lockdown? Mm. And no, it's actually a quality movie. <laughs> last movie I saw in theaters before lockdown was uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I think was up for the previous year's Oscars. So it was, it yeah. was not. Oh, so, oh, it would have been. But France did not pick it as their submission to the foreign film category. Oh, so it's just out. It will never... Yeah. Oh, that sucks. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Bummer. I love that movie. Oh, well. I haven't watched it yet. Oh. <laughs> which I which I actually consider to be a great personal failing. Uh, I, I thought it was uh, very good, but also I'm a sucker anytime you bring in a reference to an Orpheus Eurydice story, and there are some good Orpheus Eurydice references in it. Oh, delightful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think this discussion matters because it's important to look at. I I would really very much like the film industry to dismantle what it means to be an Oscar film so that we can look at potential award nominees with fresh eyes. It would and be it would be exciting to award innovative big swing productions rather than the yes. staid biographies of middle-aged white dudes in World War II. Or even just really well-constructed smaller movies. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think a movie... 
I don't think a movie necessarily has to be a big swing movie to be best picture fodder. I think it has to be like my, what I think of when I think of as a best picture possibility, it's like, what movie did I see that was the best experience that I had at the movies? Mm -hmm. Well, and last year's Oscars were, had a good list of best pictures. Um, also, I think some dross, but like Little Women was a very small movie, but I would have been ecstatic if that had won Best Picture. Um, just like I was equally ecstatic that Parasite won Best Picture. Yes. That. Yes. <laughs> I also appreciate that. I felt this. I felt the way about Parasite winning as I did about Shape of Water winning. Yes. Like this weird. Only a little bit more so. Yeah, like this weird anti-capitalist film uh, won the best picture. Fantastic. Made by a guy who could not have cared less yes. leading up to the award ceremony. And, and non-American. <laughs> like, you know, for, for the Academy Awards, which are so deeply entrenched in the Hollywood system to, to give all the hardware to a, a South Korean guy who doesn't give any uh, blanks about, like, Hollywood and its system was incredible. Mm-hmm. But I did see an unfortunate stat recently that says, like, less than 50% of Americans uh, recognize Parasite as the film that won Best Picture last year or something. Like, we just know nothing about South Korea, uh, and nobody nobody remembers that that happened, because we're a bad country. Yes. I think that's all I've got. Okay, I was, I was wondering, yeah, if you've got any other things kicking around. Um... I guess why like why do we think biopics are such like obvious Oscar movies? Because I feel like every not every, but like all Oscar bait films are either biopics or war movies. Um and war movies I can see because like oh you've got a war, that's your action set pieces, you got your pathos, all the rest of it, but like biopics are not what I would necessarily default to if I were to like conjure up what a a like uh, Oscar bait film would be without the 92 years of Oscar history, you know? I'm not sure. Um, war movies are easy because they're right. big events. Right. Um, biopics, I think, because they tend to be a centerpiece for whoever they think is going to be the best actor for that year. Mm. Uh, again, like J. Edgar, you get Leo in the role and uh, he'll, he'll turn in a good yeah. performance and, yeah. Yeah, whatever that... Um, whatever the name of that oh, darkest hour was mm -hmm. a movie that was built for Gary Oldman to win best picture or best actor. Right. And also because I think it's kind of another symptom of being lazy, <laughs> like as like a bad one. I mean, Lincoln is not a Lincoln is a biopic that is compelling. Uh, Lincoln um, is a movie. Also... Lincoln is a movie that I have seen. I can put on, any time and watch any amount of it and just be happy uh because i love daniel day lewis's performance in that movie um but otherwise like you you kind of have the bones of your script already made mm. like if you if you want to phone it in and i don't think you should i think this is why we get bad biopics but if you want to phone it in you can sure uh tony kushner is going to spend 30 years reading every lincoln book ever written and create the script for lincoln but random dude could like read a biography on j edgar be like i don't know here's the life of j edgar great mm -hmm. done and done 
turn that into three acts and print. I have no idea who wrote the script for J. Edgar. I'm throwing him under the bus here, but no, we talked about this earlier. The guy who did um, milk, milk. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And they're they're recognizable moments in history. So you you don't need you don't need to earn audience buy in because you already kind of have it. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, especially with um, twentieth century biopics, I'll say uh, so much of the Academy, and this is slowly changing, but so much of the Academy is old and white that having a biopic about a person who was around in the lifetime of older Academy members doubles that like buy-in. It's like, ah, oh, yes, I remember when J. Edgar Hoover died. I remember when he was tapping, you know, all the, all the protesters, uh, phones. Um, mm-hmm. that just like increases that buy-in a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good place to end. Yeah. Uh, so, that is going to do it for us today. Um, Pete, what are we talking about next time? Well, the next episode is coming out a few days after Halloween, but more importantly, uh, the day after the election. So it's going to be real spooky <laughs> and scary. So we're going to be talking about folk horror. Um, that said, I do not expect to know the results of the election by the time we're recording. Well, we're recording the podcast before the election, so I will definitely not know the results by then. Uh, but I'm also not expecting to know the results by the time this drops. It'll take a little bit for that to come in to tally all the ballots. Um, this is my little they political. Had they had better count every single ballot. If I get any of these news stations preemptively calling this election when we've only recorded like 3% of respondents, yeah. I'm going to set them on fire with my brain. Yes, I, I will join your fire starter uh, cabal uh, to do that. Uh, or possibly Witches Coven, which is more in line with our uh, topic for next <laughs> next episode. Uh, yeah, we are talking about folk horror. Um, I uh, or We basically co-figured out what we're going to be uh, watching, but to break it down easily for me and Martha, I assigned the, um, uh, the most recent version of a folk horror movie, which is Midsommar. Uh, and I'm going with 1973's The Wicker Man. Uh, Once be- again, that is... 1973. <laughs> I was going to say, be very careful on that one. Uh, you don't want the we bees. Want Chris- not- we want Christopher Lee, not Nicolas Cage. Not the bees. Not the bees. Not the bees. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, uh, if you would like to engage with the show even more, uh, you can follow us on social media. We are on all the places at DYDYH Podcast. We share a feed with our sister show, Love Ya, that releases on opposing weeks to this one. Uh, in that show, I talk about adult rom-coms and teen cinema with Pete's wife, Marin. It's a lot of fun, and you should watch it. Our next episode is going to be releasing uh, on ho- the Wednesday before Halloween, and we will be discussing Hocus Pocus. Uh, you, you can find you had that pattern down such that I didn't have to ask you any priming questions, which was great. I was practicing it in my head. I wasn't. <laughs> it. 
Uh, you can follow me on social media at all the places at Magical Martha. Uh, and now is the perfect time to subscribe to my newsletter ahead of me posting my 100 scariest movie moments from 2010 until now. You can find that at tinyletter.com forward slash Magical Martha. Pete, where can people find you? And you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture, uh, staring into the abyss, it's staring back, real fun. But I'm also trying to post, you know, whatever random fun stuff comes across my feed, too, because uh, staring into the abyss, sometimes the abyss needs puppies. It's true. Or, uh, as I recently discovered, Spider-Cat, uh who's going to be in the next Spider-Man video game, which I won't play, but hey, he's a bodega cat who helps Spider-Man. Fantastic. I just retweeted a thread on Twitter about how Corgi mixes always look like a Corgi is in cosplay as the other dog. The one, uh, the, the lead one of that with the Corgi Dalmatian, I lost my mind. Perfection. Someone yes. just painted a Corgi black and white. Yes. <laughs> Uh, thank you all so much for listening. I'm pretty sure that that is everything that I need to uh, say to wrap things up. We will see you in a couple of weeks. And until then, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed. Cool. Good up. I talked a lot. It's going to be a little long, but that's okay. Uh, Is I'm, it? I'm ballparking this at an hour and 10.